If you would please turn your Bible to the book of Nehemiah, our sermon text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 8. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 398 of the Pew Bible. And we're preaching from Nehemiah this morning because this is Ben Strickland's favorite book of the Bible. Now, Alex's favorite book is Ecclesiastes, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to get meaningless, so meaningless is, is everything in, in a sermon for uh, an ordination. So I'm not quite that good, Alex, to get that in there, but Nehemiah's got some good stuff for, uh, for an ordination sermon. So again, Nehemiah chapter 1, starting at verse 1, page 398. Hear now the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts and are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hands. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, 
that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for your spirit to be upon me, Lord, that you will speak through me. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. These words are, 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 will just bounce off of our hearts unless your Holy Spirit is here to make our hearts tender. And so, Father, I pray that we will have an encounter with you. We will see you. We will be changed by this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is an exciting day, a day that we have waited for for some time, a day when we ordain these two men, these, these two dear friends of mine, to be officers in Christ's church. And being an officer in the church is, is a great privilege, but it's also an awesome responsibility. The position of officer, being a ruling elder in the case of Alex or a deacon in the case of Ben, although these are positions of honor, these are positions of authority, they are positions worthy of respect, and again, in the case of, el- of the elder, worthy of submission by members of this congregation. But the essence of an officer here at Northgate and in Christ Church is the officer is first and foremost a servant of God. Now, in truth, every single Christian fits this role. Every single Christian is called to be a servant of God. But the deacon and the elder, these men are, are chosen by God. They are confirmed by the session. They are confirmed by the congregation. They stand out. They are given a special anointing. But everything we see for the officer is applicable to every single Christian. So if you're not an officer, don't check out. It's real easy to say, well, I'm not an officer. I'm never going to be an officer in the church, so I don't, I don't really need to listen to this now. This sermon is for you as well. See, if you are a follower of Christ, you too are also called to be a servant of God. And this fact is clearly seen in our readings that we had, our New Testament reading, our Gospel reading this morning. In our New Testament reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see the qualifications for the elder and the qualifications for the deacon. And notice that other than the requirement to teach, which is for the, to teach God's word, which is given to the elder, all other qualifications, all other descriptions of character would really describe every mature believer. Every one of these qualities should be seen in every follower of Christ, regardless of whether we serve as an officer or not in the church. And in our gospel reading, we were given the mission, the mission for the church, the mission for the officers, and it is the Great Commission. It is to proclaim the gospel. It is to make disciples, to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And again, this commission is not just limited to officers. It is given to the entire church. It is the mission of each and every one of us who follow Christ. But officers, again, are given a special anointing. They are to lead. They are to equip the rest of us in the church to fulfill the great commission. And in our sermon text this morning, we're going to look at the person of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah, we are given an example of what it looks like to be a servant of God. In Nehemiah, we see certain practical Gifts, gifts necessary for a servant of God, necessary to be an officer in Christ's church, whether you are a deacon or whether you're an elder. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to go through and briefly list out eight qualities and applications that we see from this text of what it looks like to be a servant of God. So we're just going to jump right in. The first thing that we see from this text is that the servant of God identifies with the people of God. The servant of God identifies with the people of God. And we see this in the first four chapters of the uh, first four verses of chapter one. 
See, Nehemiah himself, he's safe. He's comfortable. He's in the palace. He has all that he's, he needs. But he's told about the people of God. He told, he's told about the people in Jerusalem who are in great trouble and who, who suffer shame. And why do they suffer shame? Because the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. Again, Nehemiah himself is not suffering. He is not in trouble. But look at his personal reaction we see in verse 4. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, when the people of God hurt, the servant of God hurts. See, an elder or a deacon, he's not above the congregation. He's not ruling them from up high. He is right there with them. He is in the mess of this fallen world with them. He is a fellow sinner in need of grace. And he sits with them. He loves them. He hurts with them. And he points them to Jesus. Not to himself. He points them to Jesus. He points them to their Savior and his Savior. And if a member under his charge of the deacon or an elder hurts, the servant of God hurts as well. So Alex and and Ben, this is one of the most difficult and, and most painful parts of being an officer. You will be shouldering the burden. You will be helping shoulder the burden of the flock under your care. Now, no, you're not alone in this. You have fellow officers that will bear this burden with you. But most importantly, as officers, we must look to the great shepherd. We must look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who ultimately will not only bear our own burdens, but to bear the burdens of the congregation that we are called to shoulder as well. And how do we do this? Well, this brings us to the second essential quality of the servants of God that we see in Nehemiah. The second thing we see is the servant of God must be a man of prayer. And we see this in Nehemiah's beautiful prayer in, in verses 5 through 11. And I want to just bring out a couple of observations from this, from this prayer. And the first observation we see, we notice in this prayer, is that this prayer is God-centered. And it's covenantial. And we see this in verse 5. Nehemiah says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. See, the servants of God knows that in and of himself, he's not entitled to an audience with God. He has absolutely no hope that he actually deserves to have his prayers heard or granted by the almighty king of the universe. It's only because of God's covenant. It's only because of God's love that he has for his people. It's only because of this that God has granted access to us to come to God. And because of this, we can have confidence. Confidence that the Lord will hear our prayer, that he will answer our prayer. And this is the only claim. This is the only claim. There's nothing in and of ourselves that deserves our prayers to be heard. So that's the first observation. second observation is we notice that his, he is persistent in prayer. Look at verse 6. Nehemiah says that he comes before the Lord day and night. This is not a, a once and done prayer. I, sa- I said it and then I'm done. I move on to other. This is a fervent, persistent pleading with God to answer his cries. And this was over a period of many months, as we'll we'll look at shortly. The third thing we notice about this prayer is that Nehemiah first starts off by confessing his sin, both his personal sin and corporately. We see this at the end of verse 6. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. Notice Nehemiah is not sitting back. He's not pointing fingers. You down there, those guys are sinning. They're bad. No, he is taking the responsibility first and foremost. He is right there with the people, agreeing with God's assessment on his own wickedness and the wickedness of his people. 
Fourth observation about Nehemiah's prayer is it's bold. It's a bold prayer, and it is a specific prayer. And its goal is to glorify God. See, Nehemiah asked specifically for favor with the king. And we see this in verse 11. He wants this favor so that he'll be allowed to rebuild God's city. See, his ultimate purpose is not his own comfort. It's not his own glory. His ultimate purpose is God's glory. In fact, an answer to this prayer will definitely not bring him comfort, will definitely not bring him glory. It'll actually bring him much difficulty. So Ben, Alex, I know both of you are men of prayer. I've I've sat with you in prayer. And I just tell you to look to Nehemiah as an example of prayer. And know that as officers, many times these prayers that you pray, they're not going to be answered. They're they're going to be answered like Nehemiah's prayers. Not, Not to bring you comfort. They're going to bring you difficulty. They're going to bring you discomfort. But you're going to, it's going to bring God glory. So that's the second principle, the principle of prayer. The third principle that we see here in Nehemiah is that the servant of God subordinates his secular vocation to his divine calling. And we see this in the last sentence of chapter 1. Nehemiah says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. See, Nehemiah was not shy to leverage his secular position to accomplish God's call on his life. He had a high position. It was a position that gave him access to the king. The king at this point was the most powerful man in the world. He had daily access to him. And he wasn't shy to use that position. And we all need to recognize that God, through his providence, has equipped each one of us, and he has placed each one of us exactly where he wants us to accomplish the call that he has on our lives, to accomplish his purposes. And this is one thing that we need to understand. Our secular careers are not off-limits to him, not off limits to the service of him. And we must be ready. We must be ready to use every single resource that the Lord has entrusted to us, whether it is money, whether it is knowledge, whether it is our influence, whether it is our position in service of God's people, in service to furthering the Great Commission, in service to bringing glory to our Lord. So again, Alex and Ben, I have seen each of you use your vocational skills your knowledge, and your position for service of God's kingdom. Fourth principle we see here. The servant of God must be patient. And oh, this is a difficult one for me. And you may not initially see it in this text unless you you understand the Hebrew calendar. But if you notice, Nehemiah meets with the men of Judah, which we see in the beginning of of, uh, chapter 1, in the month of Kislev. And if you have a a study Bible, you might have a note that this is November or uh, or December. But we also notice it's not until the month of Nisan, which is March or April, that he's given an, act, an, an opportunity to act. So we got four months that he has to be patient, four months that he is waiting, four months that he is praying. And again, Ben, Alex, remember, serving as an officer is a long-term venture. Don't get impatient. Wanting to see immediate results. Again, I, this is one that I, I deal with all the time. I struggle with. Don't get impatient. Wanting to see immediate results. Remember, the mission of the church is to build disciples. And this is a lifelong endeavor. As a matter of fact, we may not even see the, the fruit of our work in this lifetime. It may not be until we are in glory, until eternity, that we see the full effects of the efforts we have now. And it's important for us to recognize that Nehemiah was not idle during this waiting period. He wasn't just saying, all right, I'm waiting for you to, to do something, Lord. No. Much work was done to prepare 
for the future success, not the least of which was the prayer, four months of prayer and fasting that we just looked about. But there was also another important thing that he was doing during this time. We see this as we look at the next principle. So the fifth principle we see here is that the servant of God is always watchful. He's always looking where God is working. He is sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and how God is using providence to direct his servant. And we see this in verse 2, where the king says to Nehemiah, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness. This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah realized here, realized that this was his opportunity. This was the moment for which he was waiting for months. This is the moment for which he was praying. And again, for Ben and Alex, this is a huge, this is, a, this is hugely important. We must remember that this church is not our church. This is God's church, Christ's church. And we must be sensitive to where he is working, where he is moving. We must be sensitive to the spirit. And this doesn't mean that we don't make plans, but we, we hold our plans lightly. It mu- we must be ready to take a detour if the Lord shows us a detour, if his providence directs us. And man, have I learned that in my six years here at Northgate. We've had tornadoes, we've had hurricanes, we've had pandemics. Believe me, my plans were thrown out the window many times. I had to follow where the Lord was leading and knowing that he is blessing. The sixth principle we see here, the servant of God must have courage to act decisively when he sees God moving and a God-given opportunity. And we see this in verses 2 and 3. Nehemiah says at the end of verse 2, then I was very much afraid. Well, Nehemiah had good reason to be afraid. See, the king had just basically called him out for being sad in his presence. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal, but we need to realize that, humanly speaking, this king was the most powerful man in the world at the time. And the king did not really see himself as a counselor to his servants to find out why they're sad. See, as a servant, they were expected to do a job and not to be noticed. So the king had absolute power over his servants, absolute power of life and death. It's not like now we can worry about getting fired. No, he could be killed on the spot. And remember, Nehemiah had an important job. He was the cupbearer. And what that meant is Nehemiah's job was to taste the king's wine, to make sure it was safe, to make sure it wasn't poison. Now, the king, seeing his cupbearer in a bad mood, or, or being sad, that would make me pretty pretty nervous. This could have been an indication. Well, maybe Nehemiah's up to something. Maybe he's, he's plotting a plan to assassinate me. It would not be unreasonable for the king to have Nehemiah executed on the spot. But this was an opportunity Nehemiah was waiting for. And he needed to move forward, even if he was terrified. He needed to act decisively. Now, he may have wanted, I know me, I would have wanted to force a smile and profuse, profusely apologize. But Nehemiah had a higher calling. He needed the courage to go through with his calling, to take advantage of this God-given opportunity. And again, Ben and and Alex, there will be times in your roles as as deacon and elder where you're going to be uncomfortable. There may be times when you are terrified. There may be times when you are in physical danger. You may minister in, in a dangerous part of Albany. You may be ministering to a dangerous person. And I know some of you have been involved in these situations already. But more likely, it's going to be spiritual danger. See, as an officer, it's not a might. It is an absolute guarantee that you will encounter spiritual opposition. 
And I have seen it. I have seen the manifestation of demonic activity. And I can tell you, it is terrifying. But as a servant of God, you are called to be courageous. The seventh principle that we see here is that the servant of God must be prepared when an opportunity occurs. And we see this in in verse 4. When the king says to Nehemiah, what are you requesting? What are you requesting? This is it. This is his opportunity. This is what he's been praying for. This is what he's been waiting for. And this is not a time to, to hem and haw and say, oh, I, I don't know. You know. No, you need to be decisive. The servant of God needs to be ready to give an answer when the opportunity comes up. A well thought out, a planned out answer. And he must have a plan ready to go when this situation arises. And Nehemiah has this pretty detailed plan that we see in verses 5 through 8. But here's an important part. Before Nehemiah even begins to tell the king of his plan, look at what he does. Notice that he does something very important. Look at what Nehemiah does at the end of verse 4. You can miss it. It's, It's so short. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah does what I call an arrow prayer. I'm sure some of you have done these these quick little arrow prayers. Lord, give me the words. Lord, help me. Help me in this situation. And I tell you, I pray these all the time. When I am meeting with people, if I'm in a counseling situation, if someone has a difficult situation, I don't have the answer. Like, Lord, I don't know what to say. Please give me some words in this situation. I remember when I was in secular world, when I was uh, interviewing for jobs, and, and someone asked me a tough question. Immediately, I'm praying, Lord, give me the answer. Give me the words. I have no idea what to say. And I have found, I can tell you, every single time, the Lord has answered these prayers. He brings to mind exactly what I should say at that moment. I remember years ago, this is probably 15 years ago, I was interviewing for a, a position at Virginia Tech. And it was a grueling, day-long interview. It started early in the morning with breakfast, and it went all through the day, meeting with multiple people, multiple meetings, different stakeholders. I was meeting with the search committee. I was meeting with direct reports to the position and, and other managers. And I had hours of, of questions and scenarios just thrown at me. And, and I remember each time I would shoot up a little, you know, someone, someone who, who didn't like me, I could tell. Actually, one of the people, persons who, who became one of my direct reports, and later we got a great, a, a great uh, relationship, but I knew he didn't want me. He didn't think I was qualified for this job, which I wasn't, but the Lord had different plans. And he asked me this really difficult question, and I'm, all right, Lord, give me, give me the answer, these, these, these arrow prayers. And the Lord brought to mind exactly what I should say at that time. And it worked. I got the job. But in order for for those arrow prayers to direct me what to say, I needed to be prepared. I needed to have examples and illustrations and ideas and stories ready to answer when the questions come. See, the Lord directed me to which one, but I needed to do the work beforehand to to know what I had to have some material for him to direct me to beforehand. And I know when I first met Alex, Alex had always had the gift of, of teaching. And he would tell me that whenever he was studying scripture, he would always go through on how I would teach it, think how I would teach this. And he said he would often be in his car teaching his steering wheel. He said anyone see him driving down would think he's crazy. He's making all these points. This is He's always prepared. And when a question comes at counseling, he's already thought through it. He's already gone through it. He has the answer. As I saw him even engaging on Facebook these last couple of days with a, with a, a challenging friend of mine where he was answering and he was perfect answering it because he's prepared beforehand. And Ben, the same thing. I know you tell me when you go on your walks, you've got your pad with you. 
to, to, to write down the ideas that you have when you're out, what the Lord is bringing to you. And you've even had deacon ideas. I mean, he, he hasn't even been ordained yet. And he's already had successful things that he's implemented that's actually had, were, were quite a blessing to the church that he's done. So you both do this. You both are prepared beforehand and asking the Lord to direct you. So this is the seventh principle that we see. Now, one of the dangers that, that, that I have when I'm preaching through um, some of these Old Testament narratives, especially looking at characters as an example, one of the dangers that, that preachers often run into is, is you moralize the text. You look and say, here's Nehemiah, be like Nehemiah. That's the example. And if you do this, you really miss the main point of Scripture. See, the thing is, Nehemiah is a great example of a servant of God. And no matter how good any of us are as officers, Ben or Alex or any of the rest of us, the thing is, we are not Nehemiah. None of us at the uh, officers at Northgate are Nehemiah. Very few people, very few people who have ever lived have the natural abilities, the opportunities, the calling that Nehemiah had. And it's really difficult if we say, just be like Nehemiah. Now, we can learn from Nehemiah, and that's great. But the real power comes not from Nehemiah's example as a servant of God, but rather the real power comes from the God for whom Nehemiah serves. You see, we may not be equal to Nehemiah's gifting and calling and opportunity, and we certainly are, but the thing is we do serve the same God. In a sense, then, we are on equal footing with Nehemiah. We serve the exact same covenant-keeping God. And this is really the only reason that we can apply any of these principles to ourselves, because we don't have anywhere near the ability of Nehemiah. But you know what? We actually have an advantage over Nehemiah. You may say, what? We have an advantage over Nehemiah. See, we serve the exact same God. But you know what? We know him better. Can you imagine that? We know this covenant-keeping God better. And it's not because we're smarter or more spiritual or anything like that. It's because he has revealed more of himself to us than he has to Nehemiah. This God has chosen to reveal more about himself and his plan of redemption to us right now, to each one of us sitting in this room, than he chose to reveal to Nehemiah or to any of the prophets of the Old Testament. In the last sentence of our reading in uh, 2.8 says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And the last principle that we get from this passage is that the servant of God, Ben, Alex, you can be sure, you can be absolutely sure that the good hand of your God is upon you. And brothers and sisters, every one of us here, each one of us who is in Christ, can be sure that the good hand of our God is upon us. And why? Because Scripture tells us. We have the full disclosure of Scripture. Because we now know, we now see, we now have the reality for which Nehemiah only had a shadow. He only had a promise. We now have the substance of those things promised. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the substance of those promises. And because of him, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the good hand of God will always be upon us. It will be eternally upon us. And why is that? It's because the Lord Jesus Christ, he took upon us the sin, the rebellion, the lawlessness of each one of ourselves. Each one of us is committed against the holy God. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore the weight. He bore the punishment that that sin deserved. He paid the price that God's divine justice required. And in the place of our sin and rebellion, Christ gave us his perfect obedience. Christ gave us his perfect love. 
So when God looks at us, he doesn't see the ugliness of our sin, but only the perfect beauty and the holiness of his beloved son. And because of this, because of this, the barrier of sin is now gone and we are open to his grace and open to his blessing. So we know that his good hand will always be upon us. So Ben and and, and Alex, because of Christ, because of the gospel, regardless of your natural gifting for the office, and both of you have many gifts, but I can promise you those natural giftings will not be enough. They will never be enough. And even though this will be the most spiritually difficult task you've ever attempted, but because of Christ, because of Christ, I can promise you that you will be successful in this calling. Because of Christ, you can be confident that the good hand of the Lord is upon you on your ministry here at Northgate. And this is your personal hope. This is your personal, this is a personal hope of each one of us. But this is the hope that you as officers are to proclaim to the world. This is the great commission that you are to proclaim to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for my brothers who are going to be ordained today. Lord, I pray that you will be upon them. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will be upon each one of us. And that each one of us, whether we are called to be an officer or whether we are called uh, to some other ministry, we will see our first and foremost task is a servant of God, a servant of you, and to bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.